Welcome to You Can't Laugh at That's You Can't Laugh at Work series featuring me, David Horning. Today's episode features the co-founder and CEO of Feather, a company that helps nonprofits and associations and charities market to their audiences to help them make their events a success and create new revenue streams, digitize referral marketing, grow and convert their audiences. This was a fun episode because Alex is a CEO uh, who before taking on this role was never even involved in any board meetings. We talk a little bit about how to respond to making mistakes and more importantly how to reframe making mistakes, reframe failure. We also talk about how comedians and entrepreneurs are both great at their messaging whether it comes to a company reaching potential clients or a comedian reaching their audience with more controversial topics. We also talk about the onboarding at Feather, the meaning of being openly manipulative as a leader, and how money can serve as a messaging tool, not a motivator, among so many other things, including Feather's transition to a four-day work week and the impact that that's have as well as the conversations about transparency and communication and surveys sent out to get feedback for your organization. This episode is a little bit longer than our usual You Can't Laugh at Work episodes. The conversation just kept going, and there's a lot of good information in there. So please, after you finish listening to this episode, make sure you rate us five stars on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Share with your friends, share with your coworkers, share with your team. There's a lot of good episodes with a lot of fresh perspectives on how to lead, how to build a top workplace, and how to reach your clients, customers, and your employees on a deeper level. But before we get to that, this podcast is brought to you by Water Cooler Comedy. What if your team was as excited to clock in on Monday morning as they were for that first drink on Friday night? As the workforce continues to shift and deal with new disruptions and distractions, Leaders are looking for answers as to how they can bring their teams together, recruit and retain top talent, and be ready for the next unexpected adversity. Turns out, when humor plays an active role in the workplace experience, it can help solve all of those challenges. And at Water Cooler Comedy, it's our mission to turn your company into one where laughing together is part of building a stronger culture and improving the problem-solving process. From customized corporate comedy experiences to keynotes to comedy workshops to online training and one-on-one consulting and more, Water Cooler Comedy can help make your company one where people come together to laugh around the water cooler, whether it's in person or virtual. Schedule a free consultation today at watercoolercomedy.org forward slash booking or learn more about us at watercoolercomedy.org because we want to help you make work the time and place to laugh. Thank you for joining this podcast. This is uh, this is part of You Can't Laugh at That. Uh, typically, we bring in comedians to talk about why the topics that they talk about are funny and why it's okay to laugh. Um, but I've expanded this to bring in the leaders at top workplaces, of innovative workplaces who, who emphasize culture um, and who kind of just introduce the human side into the mm-hmm. workplace experience, because that's something, especially nowadays, that we need. And uh, joining me today on uh, the You Can't Laugh at Work part of this podcast is Alex Leventhal. Uh, Alex is the, uh, are, you, are you a co-founder or? Yes. Uh, okay, yes. a co-founder. CEO, one of the co-founders. Of Feather. Uh, kind of explain to us what, what Feather is uh, in a, uh, as though I'm five years old. Sure. So, okay. Five years old. Wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll give you 15 year old and five years old. All right. Old. That's fair. Uh, so the 15-year-old explanation is we make uh, kind of web-based marketing software, not so different from, you know, if you've heard of MailChimp, Constant Contact, uh, and then there's some people who are sort of more in the marketing industry have heard of HubSpot, Pardot, Marketo, those. Basically, it's a kind of web app you log into and you do your digital uh, marketing, uh, measurement, performance, analytics, whatever through. So uh, fundamentally, very similar in... Uh, function to those kinds of tools. 
Our wrinkle is we focus on particular kinds of customers and a particular group of industries. Uh, mainly, our main kinds of customer are trade associations, nonprofits, charities, foundations, um, and event organizers. And there's a there's a large overlap. If anybody who's listening kind of works into any in any one of those companies, they'll be like, all of those are kind of the same thing. Um, the big difference is it's companies that have you know a kind of sort of group of members or existing patrons, customers. Uh, so they want to get more of those, but they also want more of those, uh, those people to interact with more of the other stuff that they do. Uh, so that implies some kind of unique marketing use cases, challenges. Uh, there are just some interesting cultural and you said sort of human, human aspects to as we get farther and farther along the waves of technology, um, the the waves of adoption there's like the waves of early adoption and then late adoption and uh in the same way that happened with economies there are these sort of waves of specialization where these corners and pockets of markets and industries that just didn't have the right messaging didn't have the right whatever to make it work for them uh get explored and that's basically what we're doing is we're making modern digital marketing available to this uh, sort of corner of uh an industry Okay, a couple of things there. Uh, when the, uh, the world now is incredibly different than than it was even two years ago, three years ago, right, uh, right, right. let alone when you when you founded Feather. Right. Uh, how have you adapted? How have you evolved? Um, put as simply as possible. Sure. Yeah. Um, you, you, and do you mean really with respect to COVID, or just over the last you know five, six, seven years that we've been doing this company? I mean, from, yeah, the five or six, yeah, the, the, the long game. Yeah, interestingly, uh, I think there's a perspective where the way we've had to adapt is in really embracing uh, patience with our point of view. Because as, as I said, you know, what we're doing is sort of figuring out how to sell and bring a pretty standard kind of thing to an industry that just hasn't adopted it yet. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the analogies, metaphors I always use are like, it, well, it's like we're selling accounting software to companies that just haven't happened to get accounting software yet. And so we're not, uh, and we're never in the position where we had to prove that marketing is useful or necessary. It's a core piece of software that all businesses have. The real sort of thing we've had to adapt to is understanding the rate at which a, a, an industry, a market will accept technology. Uh, and so there are some people, again, the early adopters, they're like, I immediately know what you're talking about. I know what the value of this is, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then you have, for whatever reason, the people who are reticent to, for, to accept something, there is a ceiling on the rate at which they will accept it. And so the mistakes that we've made along the way uh, have kind of all been along the lines of trying to do too much too fast and not really leaning into what do our customers really want? Like stop lecturing them about what they should want. What do they just need right now? Uh, what problem set are they aware of? And what's the kind of value proposition, value trade-off that matters to them? And it was the better and better we got out of thinking like we're racing some clock or we have to get them caught up with everybody by some certain rate and more just like, if it takes them 10 years, we have the patience to be here for 10 years. Um, so that really informed kind of the rate at which we build new features, the way that we price, the way that we sell. We're not really pushy. We don't try and we, we in fact, kind of do the opposite of um, the not bullying, but there's a there's a very like paternalistic tone that technology companies take when they're selling to more novice kinds of companies and organizations like it's uh it, and there's there's literally books about this called the challenger sale where you have to challenge your customers um and it's very a lot of lecturing it's really professorial it just didn't work for us it doesn't work for our industry so we're we intentionally are much more patient slow and empathetic to our customers we're like I'm not trying to sell you bullshit. I'm not, uh, I, I, I personally fucking hate artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of those stupid buzzwords. And we're like, you just need to do these kinds of core things well at a, at a reasonable pricing and, and get a decent return on the amount that you pay for us. That's what we're going to do. And if you happen to get better at digital marketing along the way, and like a year later, 
you understand one of our features that you didn't understand before and want to use it and want to buy it, that's great. The, the lecturing aspect of it. I mean, that's, I feel like everybody who starts a business starts there. It's like, what I'm doing is awesome and you need it. And here are all the reasons right. why. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, and it's the thing I talk about a lot that I think that comes from the sort of the, the entrepreneurial myth of that, what Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and what, what all these people did was like, they had some stroke of uh, inspiration and genius they went away for three years in a garage, like created this perfect device and then handed it to the world uh, and everyone loved it and accepted it. And that's not the case, right? I think those people are successful in the ways that they're successful because they just give people what they want. They don't obsess about their own image or interpretation of what the world should want. They're like, what do people want to buy? That is along a kind of line of development that they think lines up with how some market, some industry, some whatever thing is going to develop. Yeah, I've I've run into that myself. Uh, not not the software side of things, but like over the last year, I'm telling people like, all right, we need you need to to create deeper connection with your teams, and and they're instead focusing on like diversity and equity and inclusion, and and right. you know instead of meeting them where they are, um, and I know better, you know, it's, yes, it's just yeah. that that human that human element of it is is right. uh, it kind of separates us from where we are and where we want to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's the, and I always equate, you know, so these conversations to to comedy, how a comedian can't go on stage and start lecturing the audience if they want to have a good set, you know, they need to meet them where they are and then take it from there. And yeah, and and the best ones, right, find a way to lecture you without you knowing it, right? Mm -hmm. They think about um, and I, I think that there is a lot of great because I love comedy, by the way, like comedians are uh, incredible at messaging. They start from some core idea, they like wake up in the middle of the night, and they're like, that's funny. But they don't then just stop and go, I thought that was funny. Everybody else should think this is funny. So I'm just going to say it. And if people don't think it's funny, I'm going to blame them. They go like, what's my audience? How do I have to say it? What's a framework or a narrative that gets other people to the same space I was when I found this hilarious? Uh, and it's a lot of the same, like both internally within the company as the CEO of the company, but also thinking about messaging prospective customers, like having a good idea is fine, but all of the difficulty, all of the challenge is, can you present it in a way that is digestible to the people who would be helped by it, who would enjoy it? I always like, I mean, I think Dave Chappelle is generally regarded as the greatest standup now that exists or of all time. Um, but I've thought about this a lot, how you know, as a 13 year old, I was listening to Dave Chappelle stand up and I was just dying laughing because it was the, it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. And I didn't realize how much about like race relations in the United States, it, it was being tattooed in my mind and experience. Cause it's only like months later, years later, you start realizing like, why was that joke so funny? What does it imply about the experience of black people versus white people in America? I, oh, I took that for granted when I was laughing, but that's interesting. And I, I know it like not knowing Dave Chappelle, but seeing his commentary, like all of that's intentional. He's he is he's very, very good at doing that. Um, so I, I agree. I think there's a lot of parallelism between kind of the, the challenge of comedians and taking a good idea and making it funny, which is decided by the audience. Right. Uh, and and people who make products or make software who makes widgets like taking good idea and then turning it into something that is decided as useful and valuable by the people who need to buy it. It's yeah, really really good point. Uh, you think of Dave Chappelle's comedy from back then. Yeah, I mean, so I'm assuming we're around the same age. I'm 33. Uh, exactly. So yeah. okay, so uh, that was like right around the Chappelle show. That was you know he had a totally different approach to stand up. He established himself in that era. And then and now he's at this point where it's okay for him just to light up a cigarette, sit on a stool and kind of lecture you because right, he's right. gained that trust. He's gained that. So right. apply that to, uh, to where you are now as an organization um, in, in your messaging, in your, in the way you approach uh, clients, current clients and new clients. Yeah, that's it. fascinating. And I, I love these kinds of like SAT analogy questions like this, this <laughs> as that is to that, because that, that's how I think. Um, yeah, because you're exactly right, right? His, his comedy fundamentally, I think, hasn't changed. It's, 
the 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 way it's presented, the way it's delivered, and in some respect, maybe the amount of effort he has to take in sugarcoating it, right? The way Advil is sugarcoated medicine, his early stand-up specials, um, Killing Them Softly, I think is still my favorite one. Uh, but I can't remember, what was the one he did right around Chappelle show? I can see the background in my head. It was like, so a lot of brown, um, it's before he became super jacked. Uh, right. But even <laughs> that one, like his jokes, you know, the, the jokes about like the black guy and the white guy's friends and then the white guy approaching the cop high and asking uh, like what street they're on. And that that joke, again, is like it's amazing. I think that special is like from 2004, 2005. And you think about that joke that's now 15, 16 years old uh, as being, hey, look at the different relationship that black people and white people have with police in America. And think about how how obviously poignant and relevant that point is now. Um, so, yeah, and his his jokes, his comedy is, is, is a little bit more straightforward now than it was. I'm going to make you laugh while introducing this kind of dichotomy or juxtaposition that is really funny, but also once you think about it really uh, troubling or uh, just kind of makes you pensive and introspective. Anyway, relating that to Feather, um, you know, with respect to our customers, the trust building uh, initially up front was that we're not trying to manipulate them uh, because uh, our, basically our customers, a sort of group of our customers and potential customers have been burned a lot of times by some of the larger tech companies, Salesforce's, HubSpot's, whatever, who I don't think intentionally, they're not, they're not trying to like rip people off, but they're selling software and technology with a presumption of kind of uh, awareness and context from the customer. They will be able to, I'm going to sell you like at point A, you're going to be able to get it to B and C. And HubSpot, and those tools are great. And a lot of effort has been good put into building them. But if you are not really familiar with digital marketing and technology and data and analytics and all that stuff, like you, you just end up with, you've paid 50,000 bucks or a hundred thousand bucks of confusion. And because Salesforce and whoever don't really expect that, they don't really have any tools to, uh, to sort of mitigate that or help people get over those humps, especially customers like us. So in the early days, a lot of that trust building was being overly, not overly, I think appropriately, but really, really leaning into being non-confrontational uh, to the point where I, I tell the story, you know, when we, when we kind of made one of the bigger realizations we made about how we should price, uh, we had done a few kind of pricing experiments the final thing that we landed on was just like, just ask them how much they want to pay. Like for based on what they understand about what the value is, like how much you want to pay. And, and the answer that we kind of got back was range was like 2,500 bucks, which was way under what we would have settled at was like, just charge 2,500 bucks because we are not in a race against these larger tech companies. We want to build trust. We want to build sort of brand permission. Um, and we want to learn the stuff that we can only learn once we have 100, 200, 300 customers will survive kind of undercharging. And if, we, if the value really is there, people will pay for it once they see it. So we are not in that position anymore. We have 800, 900 customers now. Um, the, the, the ones that we've had from the beginning, we've had for four, five, there's probably a couple that we've had for six years. And so we, internally, like the company, the employees have seen it, it works, it provides value, it generates revenue success. We do help our customers. Like we don't leave people high and dry. Um, we are able to sort of more confidently just present the truth, which is you need to be doing this. Uh, we've priced it appropriately for you. You will get value from this. If you have a question or concern, like, let me know right now, because I already have an answer to it. You're, you're a medical association and you have concerns about, you know, like uh, data privacy laws or just complexity of that. Great. Here's 15 case studies from other medical associations that have been able to use Feather and, and do something useful. Um, so that, that, that kind of parallel is we don't have to walk on eggshells as much because now people kind of know us and they know that we are not a... 
uh, I don't know, just kind of bleed money out of the industry and then sell to some private equity company and leave uh, experience, which they've had before. Applying that to your people, to your team, um, that, that sort of building trust foundation, um, how have you grown your, I mean, you've grown very quickly over the last few years, um, but also, you know, when you look up Feather, uh, say I'm a prospective em- uh, employee, there's a lot of good things on there. You look great on Glassdoor, uh, Zipia, uh, all, all those different places. What What is it that you do that's different as far as building trust uh, than, than the, the, uh, the bigger guy? What do I do that's different? That's, so that's an interesting phrasing of that question because, um, you know, I've really only seen Feather. Like I, 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 completely normal operating. Like I said, zeroth generation immigrant. I, my family and I uh, moved here from the Soviet Union when I was three. Uh, so I, you know, grew up very lower middle class. Worked as a waiter um, through high school and college. Um, but this is really the only kind of corporate professional job I've had. So I struggle sometimes to really understand what the hell other companies are doing. Uh, I can tell you what employees tell me about what we do differently is uh, like acknowledge the fact that our employees are human beings, acknowledge the reality that our employees are human beings. Uh, and that manifests in a bunch of different ways. So like I, I can kind of take you through from the lens of the experience of an employee from day zero to, you know, whatever year four, um, feedback that I just got, cause I had coffee with one of our new hires was we have a pretty organized and relatively intense onboarding process. Uh, whereas what I've been told other companies do is you hire somebody, you sit them in their seat and you say, here's your work kind of sink or swim. Um, whereas what we've done now for years, it's about four to six weeks. And it's a combination of in parallel learning about the company, learning about sort of everything about the company and internal team training. So learning about your jobs, the pieces of software that you all use, the processes and procedures that your department or team has. And the learning about the company is like, there's a story time with me. There's a story time with my co-founder, which is Aiden. We kind of talk about different aspects of the founding of the company, the customers that we have, the perspective that we have. There's uh, like cross-training, not so much cross training for the purposes of being able to do it, but just awareness of what other teams do. And uh, I really like to be manipulative, but like manipulative out in the open. So we're very out in the open about like what we're doing is manipulating you in quotes into like appreciating and, and respecting your colleagues. And the fact that like everybody in the company has a complicated, difficult job. Um, and we're going to make you aware of that in the hopes that three months from now, when you get a dissatisfying answer from a question that you asked from a different department for a favor, your response is not like, oh man, fuck those people. They don't like me. They don't, it's like, no, they're stressed and busy themselves. And I'm kind of happy that they said no, because I'm glad that they're protecting themselves and not just layering things on. Um, So that's onboarding from kind of in, in, in between. I think the things that we do are, Again, except from my perspective, acknowledge the fact that as of yet, not a single company in the world exists that is not ultimately run by human beings and have human beings in it that is not trying to sell to human beings. And uh, so we very much think about there's no like tricking people into being motivated, incentivized. The, The relationship that employees have with Feather has to be mutually worthwhile. You know, it's either like financial compensation, it's professional growth opportunities, it's the work environment and the culture that they like, but it has to be genuine. It's not bullshit that they like work and are loyal to Feather for some miraculous reason. It's, we genuinely care. What do the employees want to get out of Feather? And we try and do our best to align what Feather is doing to give as many people as close and as much as possible to what they want to get out of it. And that, that, for example, could mean somebody comes into Feather and says, I'm trying to switch jobs. Like I'm trying to switch career paths. Uh, we, we get that a lot. Like, you know, I want to get into sales or I want to get into software development or whatever. And we'll be really upfront and say, okay, here's the kind of uh, entry-level jobs that we have that lead to this, this, and this. You're going to hit a ceiling though pretty quickly because we, you know, after a year or two of experience, we're probably not going to have that next role for you. 
but it's entirely okay that you then leave and get another company to pay you more to do the other job that you want. And for us, like our view is that's not bad. It's not bad when people leave. It's, it's a fair trade because we structured the company to be able to do that. Um, so that got, that got to people leaving. So I think that's the full cycle and everything just kind of boils down to, uh, you can't fake employees caring about their work. You have to actually create an environment where they care a little bit about their work and their colleagues and their customers. If, if you don't care about them, how are they going to care about their coworkers and their job and you and, and yes, so on? Yes. That was and a huge, huge, like personal growth lesson for, for me, for me personally. You can't laugh at that. Hey, I know you're enjoying this episode, but let me interrupt for just a minute because I want to talk to you about retention, recruiting, and most importantly, culture. Because as a leader in today's employee-driven market, you are facing a major crossroads. You can either stay the course or create a killer culture and attract and retain and engage the best talent out there. The Society for Human Resources Management estimates that the cost of replacing a lost employee averages between 90 to 200% of that person's salary. That hurts. Well, the good news is that all it takes to flip the switch from a culture that's filled with employees there for just another paycheck to one where people want to contribute is the conscious decision to change. Introducing a brand new online program it's eight weeks. It's called Seven Steps to Reframe Retention and Create a Killer Culture. You can learn more about this program at watercoolercomedy.org forward slash killer culture. It is hands-on, it is immersive, and it is transformational in how you approach building your culture so that you set yourself apart from the pretenders as a contender for a top workplace for top talent. So visit watercoolercomedy.org forward slash killer culture and you can sign up for a free discovery call. We'll learn whether or not this is a good fit for you, for your organization. We'll discuss your company team and career goals. We'll reflect on where you are currently. We'll discover whatever roadblocks are getting in between you and your goals. And then we'll demonstrate what it might be like to work with us. We'll walk you through the program week by week and answer any questions that you may have to make sure that you're a good fit for this program. So sign up for a free call today. That's watercoolercomedy.org forward slash killer culture. I've spoken enough. Now back to this podcast episode. You can't laugh at that. How does waiting tables play into that? Your experience doing that? How long did you wait tables? In total, probably like three years. Okay. Yeah, last two years of what should have been high school for me because I dropped out of high school. Um, but instead of going to high school, I waited tables and then probably like a year on and off while transitioning to university. Okay. I spent 14 years in the service industry and mm -hmm. that experience is invaluable. Yeah, you learn how to deal with people. You learn how yeah. to... Um, is that kind of where that that uh, manipulate manipulating them to kind of like do other people's jobs and see what it's like to do other people's jobs and walk in other people's shoes. Is that where that came from? Cause I mean, I always made it a point to like, Oh, dishes aren't coming out. I'm going to go wash dishes because I have a couple minutes to make sure that my guests have dishes. Like that's a know. good, that's a really good question. I've never thought of that. Cause there's a lot of those elements right now. You, you share some of those experiences of again, like either the dishwasher's backed up or right. You're always at like three to 5 PM. There's no dishwasher on staff because because the, the restaurant saves a little bit of money, but somebody's got to go wash the dishes. Um, I think it's entirely possible. Some of my kind of subconscious perspective on awareness of other departments comes from that. Um, yeah. Which is the cart and which is the horse. Cause like my, even <laughs> when I was waiting tables, I really always had a distaste for being angry at other people, like in, I mean, like in the restaurant, right? Like you could go, look at line cooks and you're like, I have no fuck. I have no fucking clue how you're keeping up with this. How are you cooking eight things at once? And right. Your success rate is 97%. And it's just like, I have some sort of visceral distaste of just being upset at other people who are trying. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, those, those first experiences of, I think, seeing how, 
because I worked at like chain restaurants. I worked at Steak and Shake, and then I worked at a uh, in South Florida. There's like a kind of small chain um, deli called Two J's, and not the greatest work environments, not the greatest culture. And so maybe seeing like what that looks like, uh, a poor version of that looks like, very much informed for the thing that I get to influence and control what I want Feather to look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you go through the service industry, you see firsthand what bad management is. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked with a lot of those. Um, yeah. But then my very last job, they were they were awesome. And uh, and that's kind of like, that's part of what, what got me into the, the consulting side of things. Like, I don't want people to work for asshole bosses anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, I, so I have this skill set that I built up. Let me apply that. Um, so you, you have that, that skill set, that background, you kind of threw yourself into traffic. Um, you mentioned in a podcast, another podcast that I heard you on that, um, the first board meeting that you went, that you led was the first board meeting that you went to right, right. ever. Uh, how does right. that, how did that, like, how did you approach that? Um, and then what have you learned since then? Oh yeah. With hindsight, I mean, I approached it like an arrogant I was just brat moron. I mean, uh, it was, this also relates to kind of personal growth of, you know, learning to care about employees. The realization that I don't know everything, and it sounds like a joke, but the real, the, the genuine realization and acknowledgement that I don't know everything and other people know more than me about I, many things about things about everything, right? Like about everything, there are countless people who know more than me about that and can genuinely help me do that came relatively late in like feather, right? So even years into running board meetings. So the way that I approached that board meeting was like, I I know what the shit I'm supposed to be doing. Um, And just looks at winging it, right? Like I, I have some reasonable expectation of what this meeting could be, should be. Um, and didn't even bother asking. So our first board meeting, the first board meeting happens after we close our first uh, kind of real institutional round of money. So we closed 2.1 or something million uh, late 2015, November, December, 2015. And we didn't have a board. I mean, we kind of had a board, but it's all sort of uh, pretend or scaffolding until people put real money in. And then they request board seats as a requirement, right? Of like, in exchange for this money, I get shares, but also get board representation. So we had a real board, it was our first board meeting. And there's probably two months of lead time between that first board meeting and closing the round. That's also, there's about three to five months of relationship building with those people before that. So at this point, I have no intense business exchanges with them for four to five months. It didn't even cross my mind to ask one of them. And all of these people are like 45, 50, 55. They've been doing this for like, it didn't even cross my mind to ask them, like, what should the board meeting be, right? What should I present? What, 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 what are the objectives of these? How is the success of them measured? Didn't even cross my mind. So in, in hindsight, I would say like, like a fucking moron is how I approached it. Obviously, you know, taking risks, you're no stranger to that. When you, when you failed along the way, so would you look back and say, I was a fucking moron here. Mm-hmm. How, like, how have you learned to laugh? How have you shared that with your team in recent mistakes uh, that you've made? You know, the, the framework with which this has happened all the, all the way. So this has happened for every one of them, including the recent ones is that just very constant affirmation to the employees and to everybody, like making a mistake is completely okay. Uh, the word failure has been so abused and perverted that like all we are literally doing is describing the process of learning is like, I didn't know something. I tried to learn it. I learned a slightly off version of it. And then that eventually led me to what the learned version of it was like, that's, that's literally all failure is. Um, so, and, and for me personally, I think because I have failed a lot in my life, like I said, I dropped out of high school, having seen, you know, my, my mom struggle with being an immigrant and kind of trying to learn how the American economy works and everything the, I don't really have a fear of failure because I've seen the other side of it so many times that I don't have that anxiety about like what happens if this fails. So when I get to the other side of that, 
um, have a kind of quite placid reaction, which is like, okay, this is completely normal and fine. A recent version of this is very recent and this is very esoteric for Feather, but you know, again, this is the example was we were talking about, um, we were reviewing our failures uh, with regards to, we sent out, like you said, a uh, uh, climate and demographic, I think was the name of it, survey, which, which included sort of DEI interests and questions, uh, as well as just like, how do you feel at Feather? How do you feel about Feather? Great leadership on this, that, that, that. So we, we had a meeting recently where we looked at the lowest grades we were given. Um, and it was, uh, I think this is for every company, but like uh, communication of plans and the reason behind plans. And we scored, my understanding, given the rubrics that I was given by the people who are doing this for us, we scored very, very well relative to other companies, but it was still our lowest scores, right? Like 75% approval where in other places we're scoring 90% plus. Um, and a, a kind of useful example of that was there were two, uh, two changes that happened kind of around COVID that were received by the employees of the company uh, one, one reasonably well and one quite poorly. And when I tell you what those changes were, the like instinctual response will be like uh, exactly the opposite of what the case was, meaning like you will think the one that was received poorly is the one that was obviously should be received poorly. So the two changes that we communicated to the company were A, basically in the middle of COVID, we went to 80% pay and a four-day work week mm -hmm. and communicated that about six to eight weeks in advance of when the trigger was going to be uh, and said, uh, hey, we don't want to have layoffs. This is a sort of cultural choice by the company. We don't want to lay anybody off. We're going to roughly cut salary expenses by the company by 20%. And in exchange for that, we're going to go to a four-day work week. There are other reasons I can get into that, um, but it was the it was the correct thing to do. Uh, and said, you know, if this puts anybody in a kind of an untenable position, um, meaning like with pay, uh, that's understandable feeling. But this is our decision, and uh, you have six to eight weeks of sort of notice, right? If you need to go, if you're in, you have to go find another job or something, that's okay. Um, so that was sort of one thing that we did. And another thing that we did was we changed our PTO policy uh, at the turn of the year, this year, 2021, uh, because we ended up permanently sticking with a four-day work week. So kind of added in an additional 50 days off. Um, and we used to have 20 plus something days PTO. And it was a kind of fairly bureaucratic change where it's like you start with 10 and then there's some company days off where like we take a, a summer break and a winter break where the whole company takes them off at the same time. So if you count those, it's like baseline 17 plus whatever. Um, okay. So those are the, those are the two changes. And one would think, you know, the one that's involved cutting pay is the one that's sort of going to be received poorly. Uh, and then the one that's like, there's this sort of bureaucratic change to PTO policy uh, that's aligned with you permanently have a four-day work week is the one that's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. It's exactly the opposite. Um, and it was the four-day, the 80% pay like announcement was received as well as that could possibly receive. I mean, like 99th percentile of, I don't, people weren't happy, but there was relief and there was, I think, appreciation that that's the policy that we're picking. We communicated it as early and as well as we did. Whereas the PTO one, we just kind of sprung on people. That's because our perception had been like, the fuck does this matter, right? That this is a, and we had built in some buffers and that one caused a lot of consternation and stress because what we had failed to consider because we didn't even bother informing anybody that we were doing this before doing it was like people have already scheduled vacations people have already scheduled especially now right it's coming into 2021 there's some visibility towards uh ability to move in the early part of the year and like just we're not considerate enough of you know, even if for 20% of the people who had scheduled their like vacations for the kind of first three months of the year, because everybody else sort of had time to adapt or whatever, like that's still a really dick move. Um, 
And so that's a, that was a failure of the company. It was a failure of me. It was a failure of lack of true, genuine like consideration and a, and a just complete lack of, if I had just said three months earlier, hey, we are thinking about changing the PTO policy. That would have immediately triggered for the people who in the back of their mind are like, I'm planning a trip in January. Just They would have just asked, right? Like, hey, just FYI, I was thinking about planning a trip in January. Do you think this will affect me? Not. And that would have given us more information. When we The change to the PTO policy would have just been a little bit more accommodating mm-hmm. and not been a pain in the ass for those people. And it's, it's that kind of thing where like, that's just a fuck up, right? That is my responsibility. That is our responsibility to be cognizant of that. Um, but that's just a mistake. And that mistake is like apologizing to those people and saying to the company, uh, that's a fuck up. Here's, here's the, here's the very obvious thing that I now realize we could have and should have done, uh, to, to sort of prevent this from happening. Uh, and again, just the, the being forthcoming about that. And I think not just showing contrition, but I think you have to show contrition by getting to the point where you realize what it is that you did wrong and how you could have done it better. Yeah. Right. You can just, you can throw that apology out there. And if there's no like realization that comes with it, it's empty words. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I I was going to ask about the four day work week thing because uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. Um, I'm also a big proponent of autonomy. So if you want to work seven days a week, whatever. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Yes. Yeah. So I'm, I, I love that though. I just love that that forward thinking um, way of looking at work, of uh, looking at people and, and not seeing numbers and seeing like, oh, these people have lives, like an extra day could really do some good mentally. So you know, you them. know what's funny, and I do this a little bit for kind of comedic purposes, but also I think this is reflective of the way that I think. I still only look at look at those things as numbers, right? Yeah. My my view is. Again, I'm in a little bit exaggerating for comedic effect, but like entirely greedy and capitalist. The inescapable nexus of reality is like if human beings perform better and are more productive with rest, with healthier relationship with their families, being able to see their kids more like it's a it, it can be a purely greedy quantitative view that that makes clear like, oh, a four day work week is just better. Uh, that all of these things are just better. Uh, even if you just say like, you're just numbers, you're just productivity. To really do that well, you have to care. Like, well, I want the number to be higher. What what makes the number higher? And if it's like, okay, if I go to a four day work week, but the number gets higher, the fuck do I care that we have a four day work week? Like it's, do I care about the theater of productivity or do I care about making more money? Right, right. and and But- there, there is baked into that. And that's the beauty of this, this whole humanity thing is that, you know, the better people perform, the happier they are, the happier they are, right. the better they perform. Right, right, right. It, the company only has people in it. The company only has human beings in it. There is, there's literally no other option that I can conceive of. That's like, don't acknowledge the realities of being a human being when thinking about how productive your employees can be. Um, and so that is why for me, like I really struggle with what an alternative perspective could be. Uh, if I am a competitive person, uh, I want to win. I want Feather to be successful. The only thing that drives me towards is like what makes employees more productive? What like what helps them be better? What helps them stick around longer? And if the answers to those questions are like better relationships with their managers, better managers, uh, snacks at the office, better like better rest, better communication from the company, yada, yada, yada. Um, it's again, just the conclusions, at least we have come to seem inescapable to me. What is next for Feather? What, uh, over the, like 12 months from now, where do you want to be as an organization? Ooh, good question. You know, from how our kind of industry will perceive us, right? So I think I kind of have set enough context to say, there's this broader world of like marketing technology and marketing platforms. Uh, and then there's our particular industry and our particular customers who have had a journey that they have needed to go on to understand how, how that kind of software fits into their businesses and organizations. Uh, and like I said, we have been patient and methodical with that, the way that we build product, the way that we price, the way that we sell, uh, we are at the beginning right now, basically this month, we kind of rolled out our most recent 
uh, sort of big product pricing packaging changes and sort of the last one we'll ever do. It's the, uh, um, it's the feather leaving puberty step where mm. we have set all of the groundwork of we are this platform, we are your core marketing software for you all for this industry and space. Uh, and we will still uh, sort of be true to ourselves and be true to our customers and not force it on people, but becoming uh, like leveraging the trust that people have with us and, and the ability that we have to show people you can do this also, or like you can take this step, you can integrate this kind of data to communicate this thing better. You can be compliant with all these super complicated laws and stuff and uh, implement these kinds of tools. So I think 12 months from now will be a meaningful change in the way that like we talk about ourselves and the way that our customers view us. Whereas up until now, we've been a cool, helpful, you know, like critical or, or like necessary, useful, but not super mission critical, business critical tool. Uh, just short of what like accounting software would be or your HR software would be. Uh, and so I think 12 months from now will be that thing, the like when an association or nonprofit or charity or foundation is thinking about what, you know, what are our big software purchases? They will realize a marketing needs to be one of them. And for right now, there's no other choice but Feather. There's like weirdly no other competitor that we have that focuses on marketing software for these kinds of businesses. Um, I think we will have completed that transformation. It's like you leave puberty, but you still have a few pimples and you're still a little bit gangly. You got to fill out a little bit. I think a year from now we'll have like a clear skin and then we'll have filled out a little bit. That's a great analogy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's awesome. Um, what, what's getting in the way um, of that right now? Is there, is there anything like um, that, that you can see foresee kind of, uh, blocking that path, whether it's, whether it's messaging to, to your customers and clients or whether it's something more internal. Other than super fucking annoying anti-vax people. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I have the same answer to this question every single time I've had it now for probably five years. Uh, the only thing getting in the way is ourselves and our own stupidity. Um, the only mistakes that we make are tripping over our own feet by trying to move too fast. Um, so a thing that I preach a lot, and it's a sort of difficult thing to preach, and it's particularly difficult in the context of like recognizing the humanity of your employees is, uh, we can only do two or three things at a time, right? We can only get better at two or three things. And there's a lot of stuff at Feather. Basically every single thing at Feather is kind of broken, is kind of imperfect, is inefficient, right? Every internal process, everything that we do and a really tough thing to communicate like as a leader is we're going to pick two or three priorities and we're going to focus on those two or three priorities. We're going to make those things better. We're going to make those things more efficient for everyone else who happens to not be in the team department group, whatever, that's a part of those two or three priorities. In some sense, what I'm telling them is like tough shit. You will continue to have to deal with an imperfect process, an imperfect set of challenges. And the, the difficult thing communicating that is like, there's just no other choice for us. We don't have the resources to get better at everything all at once. And a lot of similar, like similarity with human beings, if you set 8 billion New Year's resolutions, you're like, I'm going to eat healthy and I'm going to exercise and I'm going to read 50 books and I'm going to buy a treadmill and I'm going to get back into art and I'm going to reconnect with all my friends. And I'm a, it's like, you, you, all you're doing is setting yourself up for failure at all of those things, right? You will not do any of those things. But if you pick one or two, you have a chance of doing it and you have a chance of showing up the next year with the opportunity to then get to that next thing. And if you do that consistently enough, you know, as an individual, 10 years later, you could be much healthier, much happier, much more well-rounded. And the same thing goes as a company is like the, the challenge of, basically keeping a bunch of creative, ambitious people who get really frustrated with things being imperfect, like at bay and getting them to appreciate, like just keeping the submarine in the water, moving forward is a tremendous we can do is uh, like incentivize that, right? And, and get better with like, this is a win for the company, right? If we can do these two or three things. So everybody gets paid, everybody wins if we can do this. 
and being more transparent, just like more uh, clear about this is why we're prioritizing these things. We are aware of these other challenges. We may get to them in the future. Again, no promises, but like to be in a position to get to them in the future, we have to get to the future, which means we have to do these two, three things. And the way that we, when we stumble, right? So the thing that's standing in our way is the like, I'm do, trying to do these two or three really hard things that are really important, but let's just add on more to the plate, right? Like, like let's fix another thing. Let's do another thing. Um, that, that is, it's always that that is standing in our way. We do our best to pick strategies that genuinely involve the whole company. And so they, their strategies are genuinely very codependent, meaning like the teams and departments who are frustrated with maybe like hard work, they have to do that. They don't have enough like free time to go work on other stuff because like them being able to hit, to hit some threshold or benchmark is necessary for the whole system to work. So the thing that I always tell them is like, no, you can't do it. No, we won't like pay for this thing. No, we won't do this because I don't want you to kill yourself with like effort, mm -hmm. right? Like the thing that we try and I, and I think I, and we can get much better at this is like, if we get to the end of the year and the company has like hit these targets, your work and contribution, which right now feels really tedious and really difficult, will have been critically necessary and invaluable to do that. And you should be nothing but incredibly proud of that. I'm going to try my best to pay you for that, like to, to financially compensate you. But you also, you learn really early, like when running a business that like money does not motivate people that much. So you have to use it as like a token of messaging, which is you are not suffering needlessly. You are suffering very, very critically because this is a really important threshold for us and your work will have been as necessary and critical as anybody else's work. Please don't pile something more onto your plate. Like just finish the thing you need to finish, let go, go home, rest, play with your kids, play with your dog, go play some sports and just accept like, we will have time to work on this next quarter, next year, whatever. Uh, so. I try really, really hard to not do that because that that kind of thing produces a bunch of people not working against each other, but sort of when they end up meeting, they kind of meet at cross purposes where like they have a set of priorities in their mind and somebody else has a different set of priorities in their mind. That's really good messaging. Uh, way to, way to re reframe the situation uh, for <laughs> yeah. them. That's awesome. Um, cool. So one, I always ask this question, uh, what, what's one thing that you have laughed at recently together as a team? <laughs> one thing we have laughed at recently as a team. Okay. So the one that immediately stands out is so, okay. So there's a story we do, we do with people as a company. We had a more recent one, uh, which was like a three hour all company meeting. So every three months that like, uh, we replace one of that 30 minute Monday morning meeting with like a three hour one. We kind of go over everything the company's doing, uh, progress we've made plans, whatever. Uh, we call those infinity wings or we change the name up. So the last one was independence wings because of July. Mm -hmm. So at this one, <laughs> uh, some, our creative director, made a sign that on one side said he's serious and on the other side said he's joking uh so that somebody could hold up behind me while i was talking to communicate to people who were newer like was i serious or was i joking because uh, i do joke a lot uh and so one of the ones that that, that we, we all got to laugh at was um can't remember what exactly we were talking about. We were talking about some like company policy or something, in my opinion of it. And I was, for the purposes of emphasis being really extreme in in the comparison between these points of view. And apparently our uh, director of people operations was behind me. You still hear me? Yeah. Okay. My phone just told me to connect to my phone. Okay. But was behind me, like doing the sign back and forth as I was switching between the more serious components of my statement and the stuff that I'm kind of doing for emphasis. And I didn't realize I'd seen the sign like earlier in the meeting as a joke. We all laughed at that, but the, uh, that like, it was literally happening behind me and I didn't notice. And when I realized, I thought it was hilarious. I really appreciate, uh, people having fun at my expense. Yeah. I love those stories. Um, 
there was one I, I'm just I just I'm reading a book called uh, Humor Seriously, and uh, it kind of goes through like how you know how how humor is serious business. And uh, I forget what what company it was, but he did they did like a two truths and a lie all about mm-hmm. the uh, all about the um, the CEO. And so he had to share it like most of his truths were all embarrassing stories about how he like shot himself on the foot and like pitch meetings and things like that. And there's a uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, as, as the Brits would say, taking the piss yeah. out of me. Um, but it, it, I think in a very helpful way, I've hurt myself a lot. As you can see by the crutch and cane next to the skateboards, no yeah. correlation between those two things. Um, so there's always a lot of like humor had at whatever my most recent injury or surgery or thing is. Uh, and the silliness with which I reapproach those activities again. Um, so yeah, my, my, I think two truths and a lie would, would, would be quite funny. It's a, it's a healthy way to look at yourself, you know, and, and again, it does do that humanization to the new people so they feel like oh it's okay to to kind of put yourself out there like this here cool yeah also uh it's just the truth and mm-hmm. so like uh if, like if i do funny or ridiculous or silly shit, people are encouraged to laugh because the alternative would be like somebody has some kind of reaction but then suppresses it yeah. for some weird reason yeah 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 well i mean you know we try to elevate ourselves in front of other people <laughs> instead yeah. of actually just being a person and Right. Exactly. You know, Um, but it's, it's definitely helpful to be able to laugh and it's evident that you have that sense of humor and you're able to bring that into the workplace. Uh, Is there anything else that that you wanted to add? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think if I, uh, if I had a mantra that I would share to other people, uh, you know, who, who want to be entrepreneurs, who want to run businesses, uh, it would just be like, don't try and hide from the truths that are again inescapable, unavoidable. Uh, em- employees are human beings. Your customers are human beings. Don't like it's don't wow people with technology or bullshit. Just like fig- try and figure out what they care about. Try and figure out what's important to them. Everybody, right? Your investors, your customers, your employees, uh, and just do your best, right? And like as a leader, the only thing that you're trying to do is you're trying to pick a plan or a strategy that has as much overlap of that kind of Venn diagram of what everybody wants and needs as possible. And there are compromises along the way, as long as you are uh, upfront and clear about the compromises that you're making to get that kind of maximum overlap, uh, everybody understands. And like, ironically, but though it's not ironic at all, like ends up being appreciative of the clarity of understanding the compromises that they are making rather than being, um, you know, like uh, uh, upset or uh, feeling like they're annoyed, ignored for the compromise that they're making. Right. Yeah. You, you don't feel like if they don't feel like you're sneaking stuff up on them, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that transparency that's been in, in every, every presentation that I give, I sent out a survey, like, what do you wish your organization did better? And nine times out of 10 is I wish they were more transparent. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wish they like, admitted they don't have the answers like just things like that just that that basic they they tried to put this front on instead of actually being honest and being open and and communicating one of the one of the questions in that survey that i mentioned was does leadership do a good job of modeling that they don't have all the answers i think we scored 77 percent or something on that which is okay uh room room for improvement uh but yeah interesting because yeah that, that we asked that question also yeah, well, it's it's you know it it's a problem that runs deeper than one individual organization. That's for right, sure. right, right, right. Why yeah. that's why I do what I do, and it's part of the reason why this podcast even exists in the first place. Yeah, uh, because you know it's okay to laugh at work, and thank you for being a, a proving that uh, that you can do that and maintain a successful <laughs> business and grow and and continue to connect with people. I will I will do my best for for the sake of this podcast and for the sake of the class clown inside of me to try and live out that you can you can be at work and still yell out obnoxiously inappropriate things as long as they are funny. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 the key there. Make sure they yeah. are funny. You can't laugh at that. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of You Can't Laugh at Work. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about Feather and how they can help your organization, you can visit them at feather.co. That's Feather with only one E, F-E-A-T-H-R 
feather.co. They must have ran out of budget for the second E or feather.co was already taken. I'm, I'm sorry I didn't ask about how the name came about. I just didn't feel it important. All you know, all that is important is that you go to feather.co, learn a little bit more about them. You can follow Alex on LinkedIn. You can follow Feather on LinkedIn. And be sure to like us on social media. You Can't Laugh Pod on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at the David Horning, as well as on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook at You Can't Laugh at That. You can also find my organization, Water Cooler Comedy, on Facebook on Twitter, and on Instagram. Check out watercoolercomedy.org, where we specialize in corporate comedy experiences, as well as keynotes, consulting, training courses, and so on. Watercoolercomedy.org, where we help you make work the time and place to laugh. Catch you next time.